Amid allegations of election interference, Congress and the FBI are investigating a presidential campaign's ties to Russia. But there remains an arguably darker chapter in American electoral history, and that was the alleged tampering with Vietnam peace talks in the fall of 1968 by candidate Richard Nixon, who ended up winning that November's presidential election. The fact that over 20,000 American servicemen and women died after those talks broke down is what led the late Christopher Hitchens to call this the wickedest event in American history. And until last month's publication of a new biography, the allegations about Nixon consisted of what the author called a jigsaw puzzle, primarily intercepted conversations involving a Nixon operative named Anna Chenault. But the author found handwritten notes from H.R. Haldeman, a key campaign aide who later served as Nixon chief of staff, in which candidate Nixon allegedly demands that Haldeman should monkey-wrench the peace process that President Lyndon Johnson was working on. Tonight we hear that author, John A. Farrell, discussing the so-called smoking gun memo that appears to implicate Nixon. This interview was conducted April 18th at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia by Douglas Blackman. Just go right to it. What did you find and what does it tell us? What I basically did is, is find a piece of a jigsaw puzzle that other historians have been putting together for decades, um, especially, most recently, Ken Hughes here at the Mill Center. And going through the most recently released files at the Nixon Library, I came upon a group of notes kept by Bob Haldeman, who was Nixon's chief of staff in the 68 campaign. And in them, he clearly records Richard Nixon telling him keep Anna Chenault working on the South Vietnamese any way we can monkey wrench Lyndon Johnson's peace initiative. And what was significant about this was that Anna Chenault did approach the South Vietnamese. She was captured by U.S. intelligence agencies. Lyndon Johnson knew about this. He wanted to blow the whistle on Nixon, but there was never any confirmation that these words actually came out of Nixon's mouth. So now this last piece of the puzzle is in place, and we can say that Nixon not only knew about it or countenanced it, but he actually directed it. So let's, um, let's fill out the scene a little sure. bit. Um, so uh, it's 1968. Uh, Vietnam War has been raging. Opposition to the war is surging. LBJ has decided not to, you know, has pulled back yep, from yep. running for re-election, largely because of what seemed to be out-of-control protests uh, against the Vietnam War. Anna Chenault is a, originally a Chinese national, uh, but a sort of Chiang Kai-shek, you know, earlier era Chinese national, who married an American general. Am I yep, remembering yep, correctly? Yep. Yes, World War II era general. The, who, the hero of the Flying Tigers. The hero of the Flying Tigers. And so is this sort of uh, grand dame of a certain kind of political constituency in Washington, um, very busy in conservative circles. So how does she, how does this rather dramatic-sounding figure how does she come into the Nixon scene at all? Well, Nixon was an anti, fierce anti-communist from the time he was in the House of Representatives and then the Senate, uh, and then, of course, as vice president when he got well-known for his red-baiting. Um, so Anna was a member of good standing in what was called the China Lobby, which was the uh, Taiwanese free China um, uh, interest in Washington uh, because her husband, of course, had led the Flying Tigers against the Japanese in World War II, and uh, she was aligned with uh, that faction in, in U.S. politics. She became a big fundraiser for Nixon. And as you said, Lyndon Johnson very desperately wanted to end the war that fall because he wanted that to be part of his legacy. He didn't want it to, to drag on. And the Soviets got in contact with him. And there's an amazing number of coincidences with this story and the story of last, last fall's um, alleged bugging, of, of, well, proven bugging of the, of, of the DNC. Um, uh, the Soviets got in contact with Lyndon Johnson, and they said, um, we would like Humphrey to get elected. We will pressure the North Vietnamese to enter productive talks. That's the, the phrase that they used. And Johnson raised his hopes were soaring. And you go down to the Johnson Library and find all the notes from that time in the Johnson White House, and they really believed that they had a chance for peace before he left office, and that Nixon personally dashed it. On the Nixon side, we now know that he directed it. We don't know for sure whether he was just reacting to what he thought was another Democratic dirty trick or whether he had deeper motives about actually stalling the talks because he disagreed with them on policy reasons. The notes are kind of ambiguous in that regard. But uh, uh, very clearly, he, he says this to Haldeman. Johnson calls him up, and there's this wonderful conversation on, on the Miller Center website where they're talking about this, and Nixon denies it. Then the traffic goes out, 
that uh, Nixon will do better by you. That, my God, I would never do anything to, to, to encourage Hanoi, I mean, Saigon, not to come to the table. Nixon denies it again to David Frost in the, the famous Frost-Nixon interview. So uh, he had built this sort of wall of deniability around it until this, this latest uh, um, piece. Like I said, it's like when you go on vacation to the beach and you, for rainy days you spread out a jigsaw puzzle and as you walk by it every once in a while you do a corner or you, you find a couple of pieces. And that's, I'm, I'm finding out that's how history is sometimes put together, just a couple of pieces at a time. Well, and this is a pretty big piece um, uh, that, that makes some other ones fall together. But so I'm trying to be modest. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's also important to remember that uh, in the end, Richard Nixon wins the 1968 election pretty handily. Um, and so uh, Hubert Humphrey go, doesn't go down as somebody who almost won. Uh, and so the, but the idea is that in the summer of 1968, as, as we're moving toward after the nominating conventions, um, that Humphrey has something of a surge. Yeah. Uh, you know, looks yeah. like a more viable candidate. Um, and the idea that that's this moment in which if somehow Suddenly, the Johnson administration brought an end to the Vietnam War, that that would be this yeah, boost definitely. that would make Humphrey competitive. It was a very key moment. If, if you uh, remember back in, in those days, Humphrey was the mainstream Democratic candidate. The Democratic convention had been torn apart with rioting in the streets over Vietnam. And it wasn't until September that he finally took a step away from Lyndon Johnson. And as soon as he did, his numbers began to soar and he began to close the gap. And then right before the election, Johnson, as part of this process, announces that there's going to be a, a bombing halt as a sign to the North Vietnamese that America is, is sincere as well. And at that point, the election gets incredibly close. And it's only because Nixon is able to tarnish um, this bombing halt, revive all the feelings about Johnson's credibility gap uh, at the very end by, by getting the South Vietnamese to back off that Nixon wins. So this is, this, in that regard, this is a very important uh, moment of history and a very important piece of the puzzle. Whether or not it would have actually ended the war that fall is another question. The Johnson people believed it did. You still find scholars today who say, no, the, the North Vietnamese were just so stubborn this was not going to happen even with Soviet pressure. So I printed out one of the one of the pages of notes that, that, that you found and that you include in the book. And so this is, this is in Halderman's handwriting. And so presumably this is, he, he's on the phone with Nixon? Is that no, what, he's no, actually, he's, well, some of them were, were, were uh, one-on-one and some of them were on the phone. All right. And so very, handwriting's not very good. Um, no. uh, but the... Um, the you read uh, enough of them, you get to... <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> and so he says, keep Anish and Alt working on SVN, um, uh, and that's South Vietnam, South right? Vietnam. South yeah. Vietnam. Yeah. And then in particular, it makes reference to on the three Johnson conditions. Right. So what, what's that referring to? And, and what is it, what's the motivation that, you know, why is it that the other parties, we, we can see why Nixon, for this very cynical reason, wants to keep the, prevent the war from coming to an immediate end. But what's the leverage to the South Vietnamese? Right. Well, remember I was talking about Nixon's motives. One of them, obviously, was to win the election. But he also had doubts that, fears that American strategic position would be undermined by what he saw, feared would be a sellout. And so when he talks about the three Johnson conditions, is that Johnson had laid down in a public speech three different conditions that the North Vietnamese would have to meet before um, they engaged in uh, peace talks with the United States. And in that process over this time, uh, all three conditions were met, unbeknownst maybe to Nixon. So uh, there really was only one reason why the South Vietnamese didn't go. And Anna Chenault was, was captured by American eavesdroppers uh, telling the South Vietnamese ambassador, hold on, we're going to win. You'll get a better deal um, after Election Day. Yeah. So, and, that, and if indeed that's something that Richard Nixon was aware of and did indeed direct it, if, if we can assume all the, all the indicators here mean what they may seem to yeah. mean, uh, then that's arguably a violation of the Wagner Act that, would, that the, makes... The Logan Act. The, sorry, Logan. that's a violation of the Logan Act. Yeah. Wagner Act's prohibition, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, but the <laughs> violation of the, the... We can get into that later. <laughs> <laughs> that got violated a lot, too. Um, yeah. uh, but of the Logan Act, yeah. which prohibits any American citizen from right. interfering in... in and, and the Logan Act is an interesting thing because it's never been successfully uh, in for, or, or carried through in a prosecution to completion. And yet the conditions by which the Founding Fathers passed the Logan Act were almost exactly to prevent this kind of thing, an individual citizen interfering in the diplomacy of, uh, at high levels of, of the United States uh, government. But, but one thing you do get to 
realize as you read Haldeman's notes over time is he has this pattern of writing next to him so you can see the different letters of where the, where the orders come from and then he puts a check when the order is carried out. He's a very, very thorough man. And I checked this with, with, with John Dean who was one of the um, uh, White House uh, uh, veterans who's still around, and this is this is you know he confirmed to me that what I had come to believe by looking at all these notes over the years that this is this meant that this had been done. It wasn't just Nixon spouting off as he and was. So this as he was notation to. right here is telling us that this is a, an order, a directive from Richard Nixon. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then the check mark says it's done. Check, it's and he has a, there's a there's an exclamation point, and I, um, and so yeah. Yeah. Now, there's another note that you found in which uh, there's reference to any other way to monkey wrench it uh, right. uh, and, the, and this term of to monkey wrench the talks. Uh, is it possible that monkey wrench could have meant something other than, than, sure. than, than this? Well, well, first of all, these, these are notes taken by Haldeman, so they're fragmentary in any case. But uh, monkey wrenching, I took to mean, was monkey wrench the peace initiative. Whether or not Nixon's motives were just politically stop it, or actually stop the peace talks, um, uh, you, you could make the argument that, well, he's just talking about monkey-wrenching the po- political side of it and not actually monkey-wrenching the, the peace talks. But they're, they're so closely intertwined that you really are, are picking at straws there if, you're, if you try to make that argument. And, and this particular note, uh, the one that makes reference to Anna Chennault specifically working on South Vietnam, is from October 22nd, 1968. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not very long before the election at that point. Uh, no. So is it a moot point? Or could, could one argue that it's a moot point at that stage? Well, except for, first of all, he says keep Anna Chennault working on it. And, and the Johnson records indicate that this was a, uh, a longer-running process than just this one conversation between uh, Nixon and Haldeman. She had been talking to the Vietnamese for some time. The other thing that, that I found was a set of, uh, a diary from one of John Mitchell's. John Mitchell was the campaign manager, later became attorney general, uh, one of his subalterns, in which he traces every phone call that was made between the campaign and Anna Chenault that month. And this was gathered in Haldeman's notes. The only time that this fellow's notes are, are gathered and put together with the notes on the Chenault affair, it indicates to me you know, that there definitely was a, a, a defensiveness and a self-awareness there, that this was hot stuff. And in fact, Nixon fought for years to keep it from the public, spent $2 million in legal fees to keep this and other political and uh, personal papers away. It wasn't, and it was not only until, um, I think, 2013, if my memory serves me right, that it finally became available to the, to the public. If you're just joining, we're hearing Douglas Blackman of UVA's Miller Center interviewing author John Farrell on Richard Nixon's 1968 effort to scuttle Vietnam peace talks. And there's also a recording, you may have made reference to this just a minute ago, but there's a point at which uh, in the course of these events, and you'll have to remind me in the, where it fell in the sequence, but where Johnson calls Nixon, yep. and you said that Nixon denied these things, but as I recall, the one tape, Johnson calls and makes reference to this, you know, what is clearly his awareness that has been picked up by American intelligence, that Anna Chenault is trying to talk to the South Vietnamese, and he... He essentially is threatening Nixon in some fashion. He's saying, look, this would be, if this got out or, you know, if we let this out, this would be really bad for you. But then he essentially says, maybe you remember the exact words, uh, I don't want to do that because it would be bad for the country. He is telling them that uh, uh, he has just talked to New Mexico and he has just talked to the Nixon people and they say, hold out, don't do anything. We're going to win, and we'll do better by you. Now, that's the story, Dick, and it's a sordid story. Uh, I told you that Sunday when I talked to you. You remember when I talked to Smathers and Dirksen? Right. Now, I don't want to say that to the country because that's not good. Right. Uh, I don't want to do that because it would be bad for the country in a sense. It would be a horrible mess if, uh, and this is sort of the test that was put to Barack Obama last fall as well. If you don't have concrete information, you know that, that there's this communication being going on between uh, the Russians and, and the uh, Republicans, but you don't have concrete confirmation that Donald Trump is involved, or in this case that um, Richard Nixon was involved, and then you bring it out and you can't substantiate the claim, then you, you have, then you end up being the bad guy in history because you've done this horrible political dirty trick in the, in the last few days of the election. But Johnson believed it. Johnson was so angry that in one of those tapes with Edward Dirksen, he accuses Nixon of treason, which was not true, but um, really furious. Some of our folks, including some of the old China lobby, 
are going to the Vietnamese embassy and saying, please notify the president that if he'll hold out till November the 2nd, they could get a better deal. Uh -huh. Now, I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign. That's right. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. I know. Looking at Nixon's motivations and what made Nixon tick and how far he was willing to go to get elected, this was very meaningful. So uh, to, it really shows that, that you know, cornered like that, afraid that he was being the victim of another dirty trick by the Democrats, like the ones that had lost him the 60 election, um, Nixon was willing, was willing to, um, as, as, he, as he later put it, go, go as far as they do and, and be as tough as they are. And as I recall, that one call that we're describing, Nixon's response is a, is a bit passive. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and Johnson is, is essentially saying, cut it out. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and Nixon sort of seems to agree yeah, that yeah. such things shouldn't happen, but neither really confirms nor denies. Now, that's the story, Dick, and it's a sordid story. Uh, I told you that Sunday when I talked to you. You remember when I talked to Smathers and Dirksen? Right. Now, I don't want to say that to the country because that's not good. Right. Now, now, Ken Hughes, who you mentioned, another scholar on all this, he has postulated the idea that this is actually the beginnings of Watergate, that, uh, that after Nixon is elected president, that because of these conversations, he's convinced there's a file yeah. at the Democratic National Committee offices that contains the proof of this, and that the reason the, the plumbers are sent in is to get that toxic file uh, so that it can't be used against yeah. Nixon. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, or? the tapes are very suggestive. We, we still need a one more piece of the puzzle that more specifically says what Nixon means when he talks about the bombing call. He had a way of, of, of getting these little catchphrases that um, collectively covered a wide range of things and could have, could have meant the Chenault affair, could have just meant, you know, they have a file about uh, Johnson's wiretapping that, you know, we may want to get and we may want to use against Johnson. And in fact, he says that on one tape. But I think Ken's Ken's theory is, is pretty sound. The other theory is, is, was from William Bundy, the Democratic national security expert, who believed that even though the war probably would not have ended that fall, that from that point on, uh, President Tu in South Vietnam had this hanging over Nixon's head and forced him to continue the war in, in a form of very subtle uh, diplomatic blackmail because he could have revealed this as well and uh, made a big stink, which you can imagine what would have happened if the American people knew that South Vietnam was not participating in a peace talk because the Republican candidate had, had pressured them not to. And we're not talking about a trivial uh, development. That Now, we, there's no way for us to know for sure that the war would have ended in 1968 or 69, but it is the case that between the time of these events and when the last American troops are removed from Saigon, there's another... 20,000 20, Americans. Americans. Yeah. And yeah. then, and, you know, if you carry it out all the way, there's also... And by the way, we, didn't, we don't think we said the word, 20,000 American casualties. 20, no, 20, deaths. Yeah, deaths. deaths yeah, 20,000 yeah, American yeah, lives yeah, are lost. lost. Yeah. Yeah. And also millions of Asians. Yeah. I mean, it, it, this brings into play, the, if, if the war had been stopped then, you wouldn't have had the Cambodian invasion. You might not have had the Cambodian genocide. You might not have had the um, South Vietnamese boat people and all the people that were lost in the fall of... Saigon. So there was, there's lots of big stakes. It's a series of, of hopping on stones across the stream to get there. But what I can say for sure is that Lyndon Johnson and his advisors believed in October 1968 that there was a peace deal that they could strike before he left office. And it was not a political trick like Nixon suspected just to get Humphrey elected. They really believed that they had, they had peace at hand. Mm. You write in the book, it is hard not to conclude that of all of Richard Nixon's actions in a lifetime of politics, this was the most reprehensible. Yeah, um, given what we learned later from the church committee and other investigations in the later 70s about the sins of previous presidents regarding burglary and wiretapping and assassinations of foreign leaders, um, Nixon's actions in Watergate actually become somewhat more acceptable or, you know, there's, a, there's an argument Normal, there. That, at least. Yeah, more, yeah. There's an argument there that he was a victim of a, of a double uh, standard. But this one, this one is different because this one is, is somebody saying, yeah, we're going we're gonna to meddle with a peace process that could end widespread suffering that could cost us thousands of lives, American lives, as well as thousands of Vietnamese lives as well, and Cambodian lives as well. Mm -hmm. 
So how is it that, you know, it's not just Ken Hughes, other scholars have been looking at this. How is it that these notes went undetected as yeah, well, long as all this? Nixon was a very unique case because, because of Watergate. When he left office, the federal government seized his papers and his tapes. And they did not go with him to San Clemente. They did not go with him to a, a presidential library immediately. And he engaged in this long litigation, like I said, uh, for 10, 15, 20 years, spent $2 million in legal fees to try to secure what he could. These were part of his political papers. And so they went to the foundation, and the foundation kept them after he died. And uh, I think basically, if I had to make a guess, it was just that the cost of storing all this stuff, because you have to keep it in climate control, you have to keep it away from mice, you have to keep it sorted, um, was just getting too expensive. And they said, okay, well, let's just finally give it to the National Archives with the other stuff. And it went to the Nixon Presidential Library, where the archivists are very good uh, at turning things around. And so they did. And it was just a matter of good fortune that I was the first researcher to, to be there a couple of years later. Um, but I also had, if you remember, Robert Carroll, who wrote the great series of books about Lyndon Johnson, uh, always. I think he's got another 40 or 50 years of yeah. writing those books to go uh, before he finishes. Yeah. But, but, you know, he told me, you know, he, citing the words of an old city editor of his, he told me, turn every page. That was his advice to me. And so it was, it was, it's, it was fortune. They used to call Nixon uh, that he had an iron butt in law school because he was always in the library studying. And so I have a little bit of an iron butt, I, I guess, myself. Well, I think, I think it was more than dumb luck, but, um, <laughs> uh, but, 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 but that, was, that was lucky. Uh, so Ken Hughes here at the Miller Center, who we referred to a couple times, he's called this a smoking gun, says this absolutely settles the case. Not everybody completely agrees with that. Another Nixon scholar, Luke Nichter, Texas A&M, says that that essentially we're willing to accept a low bar of proof for something as terrible as this because we have such a negative view of Nixon to begin with. So he's a bit more skeptical uh, as to whether this yeah. closes the case. What, what, what do you say? I, I, admire, I admire Luke, and I admire his work. Um, but you know, in this case, we have a wiretap of, or an eavesdropping of Anna Chenault saying this to the South Vietnamese. There's no doubt there. We have now notes of Nixon telling Haldeman, keep Anishinaabe working on the South Vietnamese, knowing that, that she had been doing this for a while and that she's now to continue it at this time as we're getting closer to the election. So I think it's pretty indisputable what happened. The place where you get into the argument with others, I get in the argument with other scholars, is, is what exactly does it mean and what were Nixon's motives. And I'm willing to concede that Nixon's, Nixon was worried that this was a political dirty trick. And I'm willing to concede that maybe the war wouldn't have ended because, as William Bundy said, a Democrat, you know, probably no great chance was lost when you look back afterwards. But at this time, Lyndon Johnson thought he had a peace deal, and at this time, Richard Nixon made this decision to interfere in it. As a biographer, trying to discern character and, and look at what, what drove the man, to me, this, is, this was a very telling episode about how far he was willing to go to get elected president of the United States. Last fall, we had sitting in the same chair, this the one you're in now, Neil Ferguson, the very famous public intellectual conservative historian now at Harvard. Uh, he had just published uh, the authorized biography of former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Uh, and there was a curious thing about the dialogue that I had with Neil. He had devoted 20 or 30 pages of his book, maybe more, to this episode and debunking it. And in his mind, demonstrating that it was irrelevant, almost certainly didn't happen, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And certainly that Henry Kissinger had not been a major player in it. He got a little prickly as I was trying to ask him about it. And he said, in the annals of historical scholarship and the foreign policy of the 1960s, this is one of the biggest red herrings I've come across. So we're talking about all of the various yeah. espionage and diversionary moves of the 1960s around the world, that this is one of the biggest ones ever. But so does some of this come down to that historians, highly credentialed people who have a conservative bent, really don't want to see this as a reflection on Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon and more yeah. liberal-minded folks want to see it the other way? Or, again, I'm just I'm wrestling with, does this really... Yeah. The notes, to some extent, exonerate Kissinger. They show that Kissinger's role was very limited the way that Ferguson argues in his biography, and that Kissinger was not on the phone with Haldeman and Nixon saying, uh, we must have Chenault do this now. He, was, he basically told them this bombing halt is coming, and basically what he said to them was, according to the notes, was hold your fire. Don't get too far out on a limb that when it comes, you're trapped into a position that you can't work around the election. As far as these notes and my research was concerned, that was the limit of 
Kissinger's involvement. So in that way, they sort of absolve Kissinger of the great conspiracy um, theories. The interpretation of what would have happened is different from whether or not it happened. It happened. Richard Nixon knew this was going on, ordered people to do it, and I'm not making this up. Ken is not making this up. You can go to the Nixon Library oral histories, and you can see Tom Charles Houston, one of Nixon's conservative firebrands in the White House, saying, you know, it's impossible to believe that, before these notes came out, it's impossible to believe that Nixon did not know it, and clearly John Mitchell knew it. You can see a memo from Houston to Haldeman at the time in which Haldeman was investigating this whole thing about the bombing hole, what, what are they holding at, at Brookings, and he sends Houston, he details Houston. Houston goes out and he gets access to all the files. He goes through all the files and he comes back and says, Bob, we need to drop this because we're as exposed in this as anything that Johnson did. And so they, they did drop it. And so, um, I mean, this is not, you know, it, it came out, the first indications of it came out in a Drew Pearson column in like November 1968. So you know, you're adding little pieces over time. And to me, it's, the, the evidence is overwhelming now that this is what Nixon knew. This is what Chenault did, and that Nixon was directing that. Once you get into the, you know, the question, and, and Luke Nichter argues, and rightly so, that over time we're liable to have a lot more uh, national security agency memos or um, cables from their eavesdropping of what was going on in Saigon. And that's liable to show us that, that this had no effect on two whatsoever, that it was all internal politics that made him continue. And certainly the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese showed in the next four years that they were incredibly stubborn about coming to terms uh, on a peace deal, and that, and, which is why Bundy says, you know, quite likely in the end, the thing happened. But, you know, again, because you want to argue that no great opportunity was lost, doesn't mean that what Nixon did was right or that it didn't happen. It did happen, and what he did was wrong, and that's why I think it's reprehensible because he, he, made, he put his own political um, success ahead of what, what in the end turned out to be a very great loss of life. Yeah, I mean, and if you rob a bank, it's bank robbery whether the vault is full or not. Exactly. Yeah. We are listening to John Farrell, author of Richard Nixon, The Life, a new biography of the 37th president. Farrell is interviewed here by Douglas Blackman of UVA's Miller Center. In the next segment, comparisons and contrasts with the current president. I think a minute ago, didn't you say that this wasn't treason? No, I think, it, it was, I think it's very clearly a, a violation of the Logan Act. But, but, it wasn't, not, but he, was not not, he was not betraying America to a, a hostile power. He was meddling with the South Vietnamese, on, uh, an ongo- which was an ally, on an ongoing negotiation. Now, when I first began to hear any versions of these from the, you know, reading the work of the scholars you've been describing, my personal skepticism, uh, I, had, I guess I had a low bar of expectation for uh, President Nixon as well, but I found it uh, astonishingly implausible that President Johnson would have had an awareness of these activities and notwithstanding the phone call we described yeah, a minute yeah. ago, that he could have resisted the urge to publicly reveal all of this in a way that, that or at least arguably would have helped uh, the Democratic nominee that year. But uh, I was, my view on that was somewhat changed by what you referred to a few minutes ago uh, when last year President yeah. Obama uh, made the decision not to publicly reveal whether he would yeah. Authorized or not, uh, that there was an investigation going on into uh, allegations of connections between the Russians and the Trump campaign. That's sort of mind-boggling to me in our partisan politics of today, uh, or, or 50 years ago. Well, we actually have minutes, transcripts of the of the deliberations down uh, at the White House um, in the Johnson Library, and you can clearly see them sitting down with Secretary of Defense Clark Clifford and. Secretary of State Dean Rusk, and they're discussing, okay, if we go public with this, what's going to happen? Well, A, it's going to help Hubert, that's for sure. But B, you know, it's going to be a huge blow to the war effort because it's going to show two as a, a Machiavellian creature, not this poor, brave uh, president of, a, of, a, of, a, of South Vietnam that needs our help. Um, and three, it's going to cause uh, a massive scandal showing that we bug our allies in both Saigon and South Vietnam, and we're tailing Anna Chenault. So they sit there and they discuss all this. And, and the bottom line appears to be, in my reading of it, is Lyndon Johnson saying, well, you know, and we don't know for sure that Dick was involved. We don't know for sure that Nixon 
directed this. So, you know, if, it, it could be that Anna Chenault was doing it on her own or had been prompted by John Mitchell or it had been suggested to her that this would be a good thing. Um, and without that concluding piece of the, of the puzzle, Johnson said, okay, you know, bury it. And in fact, they did. They, the Johnson papers were sealed in an envelope famously called the X envelope, and they were supposed to not be revealed for uh, 50 years. And uh, a, a brave uh, steward at the uh, Johnson Library decided this was something that historians uh, uh, should have a little bit sooner so that those of us who lived through these times know a little bit more about our history. And so it was open pre- prematurely. Um, but you, you put the two collections together, uh, it's an amazing story. There's probably you know, um, uh, another book that Ken should do, taking all that together and, and, and adding this new stuff as well, or maybe a revised edition. So maybe American politics are not quite as mercenary and ruthlessly cynical <laughs> as we think, um, uh, that both of these presidents making a patriotic decision to hide, to, to, to pr- prevent these things from coming out. Once you get into the tapes and you start quoting the tapes, it's impossible not to reveal the dark side. This is a very twisted human being. Richard Nixon came back from his greatest triumph, opening China, and he's caught on the tape sitting there with Henry Kissinger saying, you know, Henry, it all means nothing. The American people are a bunch of sheep. They look at that picture of me shaking hands with Mao and think it means something, and it really doesn't. It's all about power politics. This was all just to show, you know, to get reelected. Nixon, at his most cynical, bad-mouthing, his greatest accomplishment. Um, and, and you find that time and time again. The tapes are going to be an Im- immeasurable resource for, for scholars as they pour over and more and more of the excerpted uh, national security and personal stuff becomes available to them for, for another 50 years. They're just this amazing resource. Imagine if you had tapes of Jefferson and, and Hamilton going at it in front of George Washington over um, you know, forgiving the, you know, the, the revolutionary debt. That sounds like a musical. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I didn't think of that when it was when it was happening. Um, even as a, even as a Jeffersonian, I sat there flinching at some of the portrayals of uh, of TJ. But um, uh, yeah, so so you cannot to get back to, your, to the question. Is it is that yes? This is a man who had a good side and he had a bad side. He had a light side and he had a dark side. He um, a very uh, fascinating individual. He had this tragic flaw. He was afraid of things that would bring about his downfall. And as Henry Kissinger said, it was like a Greek tragedy where um, he went out and did the things that were guaranteed to bring about the result that he most feared. Um, so you can be both light and dark, on, I think. In the book, along these lines, uh, there's a passage from a tape that I wasn't familiar with um, that from December 14, 1972, uh, you, you quoted as, never forget, this is Nixon, Never forget, the press is the enemy. The press is the enemy. The press is the enemy. The establishment is the enemy. The professors are the enemy. Professors are the enemy. Write that on the blackboard 100 times and never forget it. And you know, that was, that was one month after he won the biggest landslide in American history. Yeah. The man was just an unhappy individual, could not bring himself around. It was also while he was contemplating... Uh, the, the Christmas bombing of Hanoi to, to savagely bring it into the war. And he was also contemplating the fact that um, the Watergate cover-up was beginning to fray. So he was under a lot of pressure, and that's why that came out. But I think it really shows um, just his, his total inability um, to accept his own accomplishments. I'm, I'm always a little skeptical of any comparisons between historical figures, uh, and, and, but we love to do these president-to-president comparisons, and there's been a lot of talk about President Trump and, and uh, uh, Andrew Jackson, and, uh, but, but there also has been a lot of Trump-Nixon uh, discussion, uh, and, the, and this press is the enemy uh, quote is reminiscent of, but though to be fair to President Trump, he didn't say the press is the enemy. He named some specific members of the mainstream media, though later he added some conservative media outlets. But he also well. took it further. He said the press is the enemy of the American of the people, people. Right, exactly. which Nixon never said. Yeah. But so as far as this comparison, uh, another, one of these reviews, the New York Times was referred to a moment ago, says the similarities between Nixon and Trump leap off the page like crickets. That's a new expression to me, like crickets. Uh, similar, suggests in a boring way, perhaps. Um, uh, but the, but what, what do you make of the, of the Trump-Nixon? comparison. Well, it has been a blessing for sales, so I'm certainly not going <laughs> to throw any cold water on it. But, um, is it legit? There, there, there's, a, there's a vast number of 
coincidences. In, in 75 days, we've had massive protests. We've had allegations of uh, eavesdropping. We've had a, a scandal involving a break-in at the DNC. We've had the press is the enemy. We've had ridicule of a press secretary. As one of your own uh, people here at the Miller Center said, it's like uh, uh, Nixon on speed dating. Uh, it took six years of us to get that from Nixon. Here we had it in 75 days. Um, so it, it, it has been um, sort of head-turning. And uh, an interesting aside is that when I talk to um, college students, they're so used to the fast pace of, of, of Twitter and social media that they're impatient that, you know, the climax hasn't come. And, you know, I say, well, you know, it took 18 months, two years of dogged work and Supreme Court decisions before we ever got to the point where, where Nixon resigned. So, that, you know, we were a long way away from uh, impeachment or a long way away from um, a, a serious investigation of, of Trump, uh, particularly because it's a re- the biggest difference is that it's a Republican-controlled uh, Congress. Um, Nixon faced a Democratic-controlled Congress who was quite ready to launch. Now, Tip O'Neill and Ted Kennedy and, uh, were quite ready to launch an impeachment investigation of, of Nixon. So that's a big difference. Personally, they have the same sort of uh, uh, runaway presidential id, uh, Nixon on the tapes and uh, Trump on the tweets. Um, there's a lot of echoes there that I, that I hear. Uh, I look at the way that the Trump staff in the White House is behaving, and they're behaving as if they're covering up something. This, there's this penchant for secrecy there that in the Nixon experience meant we have stuff to hide. We don't know for sure yet what, what that means. Um, uh, but as individuals, very different personalities. Trump was, was uh, born into wealth. Nixon was born into savage poverty. Um, and uh, a Dickensian uh, background. Um, uh, Trump was uh, sent away to military school when he was only 12 or 13, and so there's a little bit of a, um, a uh, uh, comparison there because Nixon's parents, father and, and mother, were very cold parents a- as well. Um, but Nixon read books. Trump famously doesn't read books. Nixon wrote <laughs> books. He was, he, was a, he, was, he was a genuine foreign policy Intellectual and in his wilderness years between losing in '60 and '62 and coming back in '68, uh, Richard Nixon was reading Machiavelli and he was he was he was treating himself to the great philosophers of uh, uh, of old. And uh, I, I don't see Trump doing that. Um, <laughs> Nixon very famously refused to play golf when he was uh, president because okay. it took too much time. Certainly, a very big difference. <laughs> um, uh, the uh, but let's also be sure that we've said, in fairness to President Trump, that the behavior of, of his White House staff, however much it may resemble tone and, and type of, uh, of the Nixon staff, doesn't necessarily suggest that there's some criminal conduct going on. No, in the no, White no, House absolutely not. The, absolutely not. It's also a little risky, but we're going to do it. Um, uh, but you know, psychoanalysis of a dead guy and psychoanalysis by two people who are not psychoanalysts um, of a living guy we've never met. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, come on. We can do that. <laughs> these, are, these are complicated things to do. Uh, but, uh, but it is interesting, these distinctions that you were just making of these two individuals who uh, do share a kind of impulsive confidence, impulsive response and a kind of profound confidence in their automatic uh, view of, of so many things, in particular their critics and who they perceive to be their enemies, uh, but, and a great sense of self-confidence about their bigger vision and also just that whatever, a sense that whatever I think is the best thing almost certainly is the best thing. Yeah, yeah. That seems to come through. Uh, but this very interesting difference of that the President Nixon also was crippled by a sense of inferiority. Uh, and, yeah. and, the, and reading these books and studying up on how to be great was a part of, of his approach to this, where President Trump uh, doesn't seem to be crippled by that sense of inferiority um, uh, and doesn't see the need for that. But just, but, yeah. Does that sound reasonable? Well, the, 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 the tragic flaw in Nixon came from this uh, division at, at home. His, his father was a blustery, um, uh, uh, uneducated fellow. His mother was uh, very cold individually, as, as Nixon famously said. Uh, in all my life, my mother never said um, she loved me, never told me that she loved me. Um, and he had these two brothers die, one of a... The, the younger, curly-haired baby of the family dies in a week of meningitis. His older brother, who was the uh, father's favorite son, um, dies uh, six years of awful tuberculosis. The mom has to leave the family and go to Arizona to try to nurse him in the, uh, in the dry air there. And so Nixon has this uh, really turbulent 
um, beginning. He doesn't get the kind of reinforcement from his dad. Leads him to a feeling of inferiority. He doesn't. I mean, if we're going to go into psychoanalysis, he doesn't get expressions of love from his mom, and so he, you know, he 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 is, he always has this sense of grievance, and it, it occurs very early. It was one of the letters I found was written from the South Pacific in you know, World War II to his newborn niece. Very nice thing for him to do. It's a very kind, sweet letter. But one of the things he said is, you know, everybody in Whittier must be wondering how you know um, uh, your dad. Don, his his brother, um, uh, is doing, and not worrying so much about the sourpuss brother, meaning himself. So he had this really uh, feeling that he that that he could not be liked. He carried it through him all his life that he could not succeed. And and this is not Jack Farrell saying this. This is Elliot Richardson analyzing him. This is Henry Kissinger masterfully analyzing him. Saw him up close all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that very sad story about downplaying and bad-mouthing even his accomplishments in China you know, shows that. So then he gets into this moment of pressure where his, his dad's instinct is fight back. You know, do whatever it takes. Um, there's a story in, in the book, uh, there's a story that's not in the book of a Secret Service agent in 68 walking down the aisle of the plane and seeing Nixon in his, in his seat, catching him unawares, and Nixon is sitting there pounding the armrest saying, Got to be tougher. Got to be tougher. Got to be tougher. Um, so it was Nixon against the world, and once he got in that spot, um, bad things began to happen. We are listening to Douglas Blackman of UVA's Miller Center interviewing John Farrell, author of a new biography entitled Richard Nixon, The Life. Well, and you put your finger on something really important, I think, from my observations of a lot of political figures over time from the local level up to the White House um, and the, the scenarios in which people do end up going to jail or people associated with important figures go to jail, and that is a sense of grievance. Uh, that a, an overwhelming sense of grievance opens people uh, to the idea that that this opportunity to even the score yeah. is justified by some sense of real or, or unreal grievance. It's, it's really interesting you said that because that is something that both Trump and Nixon have in common, which exactly. is the ability to reach out and tap that sense of grievance in voters. Yeah. Nixon, it was, it was without a doubt his most masterful political trait. He began the whole silent majority stuff in his first campaign when his campaign slogan was, Richard Nixon is one of us. Not one of those pointy-headed intellectuals from the East Coast, not the people who were preaching uh, relativity uh, in science and morality, um, but he's one of us. He's the, he's the good common folk. He reinforces that with the checkers speech because he's, he's accused of having this slush fund, and he goes on television and talks about his wife wearing a plain cloth Republican coat, and they're not going to take this little dog checkers away from my kids. And all over America, he's tapping those um, feelings of uh, grievance and resentment, and he does that throughout his career. And then Trump, last year even, used silent majority in his speeches, used law and order, fears about law and order in his speeches. So um, both of them had that ability. Nixon's, I think, the amazing thing about it was that it came so natural, and he was able to make that decisive connection by bringing out of the voters' souls what was in his own. Does the whole story of Nixon boil down ultimately to a relatively straightforward case of a, a good but troubled person who ultimately goes very bad? Well, I mean, isn't that classic tragedy. I mean, um, Kissinger said that as they came towards the final days, Kissinger would just marvel at how this was a great tragic hero, uh, a man with many skills. We haven't talked about um, all the legislation that was passed, the creation of the EPA, uh, OSHA. I mean, we could go on for 15... Another set of ironies yeah, yeah, there yeah. of uh, the, the uh, yeah, 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 current exactly, republicanism yeah. <laughs> is the dismantlement of uh, what was yeah. dominant republicanism of but the But the approach to China, the, the first nuclear arms limitation talk. Richard Nixon goes to Moscow and goes to Beijing and, and, and signs these, these agreements. In many ways, a great, great president, except for um, this classic Shakespearean Greek tragic flaw. After he left office, did his fears about Jews and professors and people who didn't look like him, some of these most terrible, most coarse things that were captured in the tapes, did he carry those views to the end of his life or did he become a different person? He had a moment of recognition in that last summer. And you see it beginning to appear in his private conversations. And then finally, when he makes the goodbye to the White House staff speech, and uh, this is probably on the Miller Center site, and if it's not, it's on YouTube. 
It's one of the great moments of American political history. Nixon in the East Room with his family behind him, saying goodbye to the staff, and he just rips himself raw, talks about his mom, talks about his dad, talks about his, his boyhood, and then he ends with this moment, of, amazing moment of self-recognition, and he says, you know, never hate, because those who hate you don't win unless you hate them, and then you destroy yourself. So that was a moment of uh, amazing moment of self-recognition. From that point on, he seems to have mellowed a little bit, but he was definitely never thought that he was treated fairly by, by the press or by scholars or historians. He was, he was bitter and wry um, to the very end. And there's some wonderful late Nixon interviews when people ask him questions like that, and you can see the little flashes of the old um, Nixon appear, but then he, he reels it back in. And then the David Frost is a good indication where two years after leaving office, he's saying stuff like, well, you know, I gave them a sword, so he accepts that kind of stuff. The anti-Semitism, I think, was a legacy of that parochial background and an uneducated father who was ranting about the chain stores and how they, the, the Jewish-owned chain stores were unfair to little markets like himself. I think that, uh, you know, obviously somebody who could deal with Arthur Burns, Len Garman, and Henry Kissinger every day productively was not paralyzed by anti-Semitism. And one more Trump analogy, it's, uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was ugly but it was locker room talk. It was, uh, it was not, um, um, I, don't, I don't think it was not a, a paralyzing thing, nor, nor did it ever leave him into any dark directions like it did with, with, uh, uh, with, with Nazi Germany. So did he get better? Let me tell you this one little story. He had a very close aide throughout his White House career who was gay. And Nixon, on the tapes, can be heard saying some ugly things about homosexuality, how uh, homosexuals can destroy a, a country. And yet this was a very close advisor who, who Nixon uh, prized for um, his, uh, his wisdom. And, and who, who was it? I, I can't say because I don't want to. Okay. I, he, he should be the one who, who says it. And, and, and I'll say it after he, after he dies. But he uh, ended up getting married uh, after uh, Watergate was all over. And the last couple... The last dinner that, that Dick and Pat Nixon had in California before they moved back east to New York was with this guy and his partner. Again, one of the phrases that I use over and over in the book is, and yet. You know, uh, Nixon on the tapes being incredibly ugly about homosexuality. Nixon in person choosing his last night in California to have dinner with this man and his partner. Um, and at one point, <laughs> uh, at one point Nixon the, the brain, Nixon the political genius, saying, gay marriage? Uh, not till about the year 2000. <laughs> Actually said <laughs> on the tapes. <laughs> Why are we still so profoundly fascinated with Richard Nixon? First of all, he's just this great villain. He's always going to be the president um, that uh, re resigned in uh, disgrace. He he's a classic villain and a caricature, a cartoon villain for us. Um, he's on The Simpsons. Um, he's the guy that George Lucas patterned Darth Vader after. Um, I argue that the, the Washington Nationals have this race where Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and George Washington have a race at the seventh inning to, to distract the crowds. They call the racing presidents. And I, I always suggest that the, the best addition to the racing presidents would be Richard Nixon because you'd have the villain there that everybody can boo and hiss if, uh, if he should win. So he's, he has that position in, in, in American history. He's, he's climbed in the ratings of presidents up to the middle. He's somewhere in the low 20s, which is pretty remarkable if you think about the one that resigned in disgrace. Um, I think that he'll, you know, he's never going to break the top 10, but I can see him you know, staying because of China, because of the environmental and other domestic accomplishments, um, staying there. If you look at Nixon and some of his uh, retirement appearances on television, you almost get this sense that he relishes the fact that he's the one that nobody's ever going to forget. You're going to forget who Millard Fillmore is. You're going to forget who James Buchanan is. You're going to forget who Martin uh, Van Buren is. But you're never going to forget who Richard Nixon is because he has you know, seared himself on the American uh, memory. The show Mad Men, Don Draper was modeled after Richard Nixon. I mean, it's, he pops up everywhere in our culture, whether it's obvious or very subtle, but um, his story is, is a, like I said, it's just a, you know, it's, it is Shakespearean in, in scale. If there was somebody who could write in that Shakespearean uh, couplets, they could do a great, in fact, there's already been an opera about Nixon. No, no musical on Broadway, but an, an opera, Nixon in China. So, uh, I mean, just, just a great character. I was very, very fortunate to be handed that assignment. 
One thing I wonder about looking through all this is that in the present, it's become uh, de rigueur almost for journalists to declare that things that President Trump says are in fact false. There's a debate over whether to use the word lie, but there, there are now declarations of things like, we know absolutely that there was no wiretapping of Trump Tower, and we know absolutely that Susan Rice didn't um, improperly unmask uh, the names yeah. of uh, Trump staffers in these security cables. Uh, and these are asserted as absolute facts, uh, even though they involve intelligence agencies and, and these other things. What's the likelihood that, um, that 30 years from now we, that things surface and we look back on this time and it turns out that whether it's those things I'm referencing or other ones, how much confidence can we ever have that we actually know the reality of anything that appears to be certain in our politics in the present? Um, I think that it's going to be more difficult for scholars of this period because after Watergate, there was no more tapes. After Iran-Contra, there were no more presidential diaries. We're down to emails, and we saw what happened to emails in the Bush administration and the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, So basically, you're talking about very, very guarded White House staffs having seen all this this age of scandal behind them, being very careful about uh, what they collect. And I think it is going to be very hard. I think that people like Bob Woodward, when they go in with their tape recorder and they get everybody to to talk for hours, are going to be invaluable resources. I think tweets and, and, uh, and emails will be invaluable resources, but they can be you know, erased and, and made to disappear. So uh, the scary thing about it is that when Nixon lied, Nixon wanted you to believe the lie. The current crop of political operatives believes that we can actually transform reality and tell you blatant falsehoods, and you'll believe it just because you've been taught that it's our guys versus them guys, and whatever our guys tell you is the truth, and whatever them guys tell you uh, is, is a lie. And that applies for both sides. That's both Fox News and MSNBC. It's, it's a, a, a great division. That's very scary. Nixon never contemplated creating a fake reality with all his public relations tricks. You know, when he lied, he wanted you to, you to believe it. He didn't want to rub it in your face and say, here, I'm just going to tell you a lie, and there's nothing you can do about it. I like the idea of ending our conversation with an endorsement of an attribute of President Nixon. (laughs) Thanks thanks for being here. We hope you'll join us for future editions of American Forum, where our focus is always on the presidency and the challenges that face the nation. You've heard a lot today about the Nixon tapes. The Miller Center is the place on the Internet that you can actually listen to them. There are about 3,400 hours of Nixon White House tapes. Once the property of the former president, they now belong to the U.S. government and to you, the American people. Following numerous legal battles that began with the famous 1974 Supreme Court case, U.S. v. Nixon. That was Douglas Blackman of UVA's Miller Center concluding his discussion with John Farrell, the author of a new biography about Richard Nixon that includes the so-called smoking gun memo linking Nixon to an effort to scuttle the 1968 Vietnam peace talks. This is Hawes Spencer. You can hear the program online at ideastations.org slash wcveforum. The executive producer is Bill Miller. The views expressed on the WCVE Forum are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the management and staff of WCVE Public Radio.